Well, if you'd like to turn up your Bibles again um, to Acts 1, you might like to keep a finger in Luke chapter 1 as well. We'll, we'll mention that as we go. But if you, if you turn up Acts chapter 1. And let's pray and ask, God's for, ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you would help us now as we turn to your word. We pray that you might speak to us by your spirit, that you might build us up and strengthen us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I really be sure that the good news about Jesus is it just what Christians believe, or is it actually true? It's a really, really important question. Maybe for one or two of you, you're at school, and you can clearly see that, the gospel, that believing the gospel is going to cost you your popularity. You need to know that the gospel is really true. For those of you perhaps who don't yet believe, maybe you, you like what you see so far. You're impressed by the warmth of Christians you know. You can see how the gospel that they believe has changed their lives for the good. But you hesitate because you need to know that it's true. It's a question that even established believers can grapple with at times. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a TV interview between the comedian Jimmy Carr and the entrepreneur Stephen Bartlett. It was a wide-ranging interview, covered lots of different topics, but moved on to the topic of faith. And both of them, both very smart and successful people, shared their experience of losing their faith. And they very confidently dismissed what they used to believe as myth. It didn't stack up. Now, they didn't actually give any argument for why they didn't think it stacked up, but they asserted it very confidently. You know, perhaps we, we hear something like that or we view something like that and we feel unsettled. Is it really true? Is the gospel true or is it just a myth? Well, if you can relate to any of that, then I think the book of Acts is for you. Because the book of Acts is all about giving us certainty, bolstering our confidence that the gospel really is true. You probably picked up from the readings that Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel. It's Luke's second book. And we find Luke's aim, aim for writing at the beginning of, of his gospel. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3 of Luke Luke says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That purpose carries through to Acts, gospel, Acts as well. Luke's, Luke wants us to be able to believe the gospel with certainty. He wants us to be able to embrace the Christian faith with certainty. 
He wants us to be able to live it out despite the cost because we know that it's true. He wants us to be firm and robust in our faith even if others turn away. He wants to give us certainty. So let's dive into these first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1 and see how they build our certainty. At first three verses, we see Jesus appear to his apostles. Um, Luke begins with a recap of his first book, Luke's Gospel, and a recap of the past 40 days since Jesus' resurrection. 1 verse 3, after Jesus' suffering, Luke says, he presented himself to them, that's his apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And just note what Luke tells us about Jesus' resurrection appearances. He says that Jesus appeared to them in public, not in private. After his suffering, he presented himself to them. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. You see, Luke says the risen Jesus didn't just appear to one or two, but to all of them. That is, to Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, together with Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias, all those who were qualified to be his apostles, not to mention the other believers, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, then Cleopas, as well as others not mentioned by name, and on one occasion to 500 of the believers. So Jesus' resurrection appearance was no uh, private, personal epiphany. Oh, Jesus appeared to me, but no one else saw him. It was public. He was seen by many Note as well that he appeared many times to them, not just once. Again, verse 3, he gave his apostles many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So he appeared to them on Easter Sunday itself three times. First to the woman, second to the apostles, third to Cleopas and his travel companion. The following week, he appeared again to the apostles, this time with Thomas present. On another occasion, he appeared to all of the disciples again by the Sea of Galilee, John 21. On another occasion, he appeared to 5,000. And now again, at the end of these 40 days, he appears again to his apostles. And those are just the occasions which have been recorded for us. So right at the beginning of his account of the early church, Luke is putting before us that the risen Jesus wasn't what one person once thought he maybe saw perhaps, though he can't really remember, it's what multiple people saw on multiple occasions over multiple days and weeks. Jesus appears to his apostles. And next, we see Jesus telling them the plan. So having recapped his first book, and the 40 days since his resurrection, Luke now zooms in on this final resurrection appearance. 
He eats with his apostles, the last, last supper, if you like, and then he tells them the plan. He gives them an instruction, verse 4, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. In other words, he says to his apostles, don't be going anywhere. You need to just stay put. Because until they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that is, until the Holy Spirit has come and filled them, they're going to be totally ill-equipped for the task he's about to give them. Imagine you're up uh, the Mourn Mountains on a nighttime expedition, and your torch runs out of battery. So you radio uh, to your leader, who's about in the group about 10 minutes behind you, and tell him what's happened. He says, look, don't worry, we've got spare batteries. We've got spare batteries, we're going to bring them to you. But whatever you do, don't go anywhere. You just need to stay put. We'll bring them to you, because until you get these batteries, you're going to be flailing around in the dark, totally ill-equipped. And likewise here, Jesus says to his apostles, I'm, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to empower you for your task. But until he comes, you need to just stay put. Don't go anywhere. Don't use your initiative. And wait. Because without the Holy Spirit, he says to them, you are totally powerless, totally powerless, and totally ill-equipped for the task. Well, this mention of the Holy Spirit gets the apostles' minds racing. And they ask Jesus whether this means that this is now the end of the age. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And for the first of two times this day, Jesus just gently corrects them. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Don't let yourself get distracted by what you cannot know. And then brings them back to what's important, the grand plan. He makes them a promise, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does he mean by saying, you will be my witnesses? Well, this is worth exploring a little bit, and because there are two kinds of witnessing. There is witnessing with your eyes, and there is witnessing with your lips. So I remember as a student, um, our front, the front window of our student house was uh, smashed by some local youth. Uh, I saw it all happen. I was a witness. I witnessed it with my eyes. I saw this, this guy pick up the stone, hurl it at our window, and smash it all. I witnessed it with my eyes. And then about an hour later, the police came around, uh, and I witnessed then with my lips. I bore witness to what I saw. I told him what I saw and what he looked like and what he did and so on. Having witnessed with my eyes, I then witnessed with my lips. And here the risen Jesus makes his apostles a promise. You will be my witnesses. So for these apostles, having witnessed the risen Jesus with their eyes, having seen him, all those appearances... They're now to witness with their lips. They are to speak 
about what they have seen and heard. You will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. So here we have Jesus' plan going forward. Thirdly then, we see Jesus taken from them. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is what we call Jesus' ascension, being taken back into heaven to sit down his, on his throne in heaven. But I suppose it begs the question, because yeah, it is unusual, is this true? Um, it's fair to say that some people scoff at this idea of Jesus ascending into, into heaven. They call Jesus rather disparagingly the first cosmonaut, uh, taking off into space as if heaven is just beyond Mars somewhere. But that kind of comment is hardly worth the paper it's written on. Because what does the text say? Well, it doesn't say anything about Jesus traveling thousands of miles into space. It says he was taken up before their eyes, and then a cloud hides them, and they see him no longer. He goes up, and then he disappears. Why? Not because heaven is literally up there, somewhere beyond Mars, if only you go far enough. He does it to signal to his apostles that he is now leaving for good. I remember at a friend's wedding, um, the bride and groom at the end of the evening left on a quad bike. Um, it was very, very exciting. Um, and as they, 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 they pulled off, we kind of joked uh, as if, you know, and said, oh, are they going to drive the whole way from England to Scotland for their honeymoon on this quad bike across the fields? Because of course we knew that the moment they were out of sight from the crowd, they'd jump off the quad bike, probably get into a car, stay the night somewhere here and go off to Scotland the next day, something like that. Why do they do it then? Well, partly to signal to everyone, we are now off, we are gone, we've left the party, to leave no one wondering, oh, are they going to come back and have one more dance before we have to say goodbye? No, no, they are now gone. It's very clear they have left for good. Well, for the past 40 days, Jesus had come and gone. He'd appeared and disappeared. But this time, the way that he, he leaves is deliberately different because he wants them to know that he is now gone for good. He is gone. He's not going to keep on coming back and visiting them the way that he has been over the past 40 days. He is now gone for good until the day in the future when he comes back. And just note as well how Luke is at pains to stress that this is all eyewitness testimony. Jesus going into rising up and then disappearing. This is what the apostles saw. So just look at verse 9. After Jesus said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. 
Verse 11, angels say, this men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Jesus will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. Lucas, it pains to stress, this is what the apostles saw with their very eyes. So as bizarre as it may sound, we can have confidence it really happens. One final thought before we uh, apply, and that's just to, just to draw attention to what these angels say to the apostles, because it's the second time that day that they get distracted and are gently rebuked. His angels say to them, why do you stand here looking into the sky? What are these angels saying? Well, they're, they're prompting the apostles to get on with the job. Don't wallow in nostalgia. Don't be gazing at the stars. Don't be wondering the whole time when exactly he's going to come back, staying in the very same place where you saw him leave. No, head back into Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then get on with the job. Get on with the job of witnessing to the Lord Jesus. Don't get distracted. Well, why does Luke tell us all of this? Let me suggest two reasons. Firstly, he wants us to be sure, know for sure that the gospel is true. He wants us to be certain that Jesus really is risen, that he really did return to heaven, that he really will come again. And if you're any doubt on that, then just read on, because what you'll read is Jesus' presidential plan come to fruition. Jesus makes a promise, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Just read chapters 1 to 7, and you will see that fulfilled. You'll then be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Read chapters 8 to 12, you will see that fulfilled. Then to the very end of the earth, we'll read chapters 13 and onwards, you will see Jesus fulfilled this plan that he has promised because he is on the throne. And then have a good look around as well because we too are the proof in the pudding. We here in Northern Ireland are at the very ends of the earth and the gospel has come to us. Why? Because Jesus really has risen. He really has ascended into heaven. He is ruling from heaven and will come back. We can be sure So go into school and live out the gospel. It will cost you, undoubtedly, but you can do it because it's true. Embrace the Christian faith that you see enrich your friends' lives. Don't hesitate because it's true. The gospel is true. When you see others give up the Christian faith, claiming that it doesn't stack up, Yes, pray for them and mourn for them. Try and dissuade them. But don't let it niggle you as if they've discovered something, the truth. No, the gospel is what is true. Jesus is alive. He is in heaven and is ruling. You can be sure. And secondly, I think Luke writes this because he wants us too to be Jesus' witnesses 
to the ends of the earth. Now, the apostles are unique. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. They witnessed with their eyes. We didn't. In that sense, we're not his witnesses in the way that they were. We don't tell people about what we've seen and heard because we haven't. We weren't there back then. But nevertheless, we are called to contribute to the spread of their message and to point others to their credible testimony. And as we do that, like the apostles, we're to avoid getting distracted. You know, twice these apostles were pulled up for getting distracted. It's not for you to know the times and dates. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? And likewise for us, we're not to get distracted from speaking and witnessing with our lips. We're to beware a, a false spirituality, yeah, stargazing, sky scanning, obsessing about times and dates, trying to work out when exactly he's going to come back, hoping and looking that for another visit from him. We're not to do that. Instead, we're to get on with the job of witnessing. I once heard this said of um, Northern Irish Christian, it's no one here, it's no one you'll know. But it was said of him, um, so-and-so didn't speak of God, he did God. Maybe you've heard something similar. Uh, so-and-so didn't speak of God, he did God. Now, I don't know what this person meant by that. I don't know the person in question, whether that was true of him or not. But in truth, it doesn't really sit right. So-and-so didn't speak of God, he did God. Because actually, when it comes to God, silence is not a virtue. We are to do God, we are also to speak of God. We're to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Of course, that's gonna, what that's going to look like will vary. And we will pick our moments, and sometimes, on occasion, it's right not to speak, okay. And we're not going to stand at the water cooler all day and with our Bible open and speak to our colleagues whilst they pick up the slack for what we're not doing. But in general, we are to witness with our lips. It's what we're called to do and not get distracted from that. So we're not to get distracted as we witness to Jesus and we're to avoid self-reliance as well. Yeah, we're to witness to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, if it was true that the Holy Spirit, that, that the apostles could do nothing without the Holy Spirit, how much more true is that than of us? As believers, we've been baptized in the Spirit. We've been, the Holy Spirit has filled us. He has taken up permanent residence in our lives. But still, we are called to ask and pray that God would fill us afresh with his spirit, to be filled with his power that we might witness to him. We're to avoid self-reliance as we are witnesses to the risen Jesus. And as we do so, who knows, who knows what God will do through us as his gospel continues to spread to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray and ask for his help as we seek to do that.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have certainty about the gospel. We thank you that we can know for sure that Jesus died, rose, ascended, rules, and will come again. And we pray, please, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit that we might be those who, are, who point others to the apostles' witness. Help us in that, we pray. Give us boldness, give us confidence. And we pray that even through us, the gospel might continue to spread to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.